Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Roger Dewan joining us now, IHS Market VP of Financial Services. He joins us from Vienna. Roger, great to have you with us on the program. Walk me through the politics of this one. Who's pushing for what and who will ultimately get what they want to see? Well, uh, the politics are always difficult to navigate here in Vienna, but it appears that there is some uh, willingness to at least uh, on paper uh, deepen the cuts they already have to be able to continue to provide a floor to oil prices. Uh, I look, Roger, at the, uh, the, the breakup of the cartel, Saudi-dominant, Iraq-dominant, Abu Dhabi-dominant, and then a lot of small players. How cartelly is this Vienna meeting? Well, it's not very cartelly because the uh, Iraqi minister is a minister of a government which has resigned. So it's not clear how much room yeah. to maneuver he has. Uh, Saudi Arabia has been cutting much more than uh, uh, what it had promised on paper before. So in a way, they are single-handedly yeah. uh, uh, making most of the effort. Uh, uh, Abu Dhabi and Kuwait tend to follow. Right. So the question is, when you want to do more cuts, they have to take the lead into that, but they have to make sure right. that the rest of the organization follows, and it's not clear there is much ability to follow that. You know, I can make a joke, Roger, that everybody in their swag bag, like you have a swag bag at Davos, everybody at Vienna gets 10,000 shares of Aramco, but, you know, it's a difficult transaction. I mean, that's what we're seeing right now. With that said, are the Saudis completely non-focused on OPEC because they're trying to get this transaction completed? No, I don't think so. I, I think the transaction will be completed in the next two days. Uh, it's mostly a local and regional affairs, so yes. they have solved uh, the, the issue by focusing domestically. So I think what you're seeing here is more than just the IPO, is after the attack in Upcake and the uh, IPO and the fact that you have a new minister, that uh, Saudi Arabia is still at the center of the action and still leading the, the organization. And we'll see that today. Roger, with that in mind, though, I'm just wondering, look, from the outside looking into Vienna right now, it just seems obvious to a lot of people that surely there's many people sitting around the table thinking that the strategy of Saudi Arabia just in terms of oil supply hinges on just getting through this Aramco IPO. Is nobody talking about that? No, because I think, look, the market right now is not uh, uh, oversupplied. And we uh, it's actually maybe undersupplied a little bit. Everybody is afraid of the oversupply in the spring and maybe in the summer. But between now and then, there's a lot of things we don't know. How weak the demand is, how much non-OPEC supply is coming on, uh, how much the U.S. will be growing uh, in terms of supply next year. So a lot of uncertainty. And so what you want to do here yeah. is to come up with a message where we're still going to be managing the market. We believe in uh, defending more and wait for better days uh, in terms of demand. Roger, long ago and far away, I remember Adam Siminski at Deutsche Bank with the fancy Excel spreadsheets, and Russia was the wild card. Are they still a yeah. card or a wild card? Well, they're a very important factor uh, because uh, uh, they're very important for having this deal uh, continuing and having them on board really matters for everybody else. So 
what the appetite of the Russians took off further uh, is uh, not very clear. And they will hold the key, the key vote at the end of the day. So, yes, they're important, and they're very important into that Vienna alliance uh, and Saudi Arabia really need their cooperation. So if they're willing to do a little bit more, that would help. If they're not willing to do a lot more, uh, they're going to have to kind of sugarcoat it. Very good, Roger. Thank you so much. Roger D. Wong with us. The IHS, IHS uh, market, of course, here in uh, Vienna, an important voice there. Luigi Zingales joining us for Two Blocks. John's got a beautiful angle here in Negative Race. John, I just want to say this is in celebration of Professor Zingales' commitment to the legacy of George Stigler. Frank Knight changed modern economics. He invented Chicago economics. Stigler was one of the few people that survived a Frank Knight PhD. Frank Knight was a tough nut, and Stigler got through it. And Stigler is the one as a precursor to Joe Stiglitz, invented the economics of information, thinking about how we think about information. Luigi's in New York for the Stigler uh, panel at Columbia University. And the professor is smiling alongside us, Luigi Zangales, University of Chicago Booth School finance professor. Good morning to you, Luigi. Good morning. Some pushback to negative interest rates over at the ECB. That's been the story for the five and a half years we've had them. But more recently, you're starting to hear it from regional central bank governors like the Bank of Italy governor, Visco. What is going on in Europe right now? Do we really face the prospect of the ECB rethinking its negative interest rate policy? I think there's a huge pushback uh, by banks because uh, they're losing a lot of money in the process. They find it difficult to uh, have negative interest rates with retailers. They try to give uh, fees, etc., but they have not arrived there yet. And so they are are losing money on the margin. And I think that uh, uh, the idea of negative interest rates is to uh, favor more lending Uh, but they seem not to be so aggressive in lending. So I think that uh, there is definitely a pushback, and particularly uh, from uh, uh, German banks uh, that are not doing that well to begin with. Uh, There's a lot of competition in retail banks in in Germany. And uh, if the economy were to slow down, we'll see sort of a banking crisis in Germany. Philip Lane, the chief economist of the ECB at the moment, is the guy defending the negative interest rate policy. Former ECB president Mario Draghi used to say that rates need to be low now so they can be higher in the future. We've been saying that for the best part of five years, haven't we? And I just wonder how important the time at which rates are negative ultimately matters here. It's been a while. Does that make it more damaging? I think it does. But let's put this in context. I think the problem is that uh, we don't have a European fiscal policy and that uh, Germany is running a deflationary policy. And so uh, if uh, the rates were not negative, we would see uh, inflation collapse even farther. And it's just the, the ECB has failed its mandate to keep, uh, to keep inflation uh, close to 2%. And it's failed uh, over a number of years. So uh, what else can they do? They have a mandate and they need to reach it. Uh, they only have an instrument. Uh, what else can they do? For the ECB, do you seriously think they rethink this? Um, I think there is a huge pressure on the German side to rethink this uh, because of the banks. Um, I, from what I read from Christine Lagarde, she doesn't seem so interested in doing that. She actually wants to expand to introduce uh, climate change into the equation. How on earth do you introduce climate change into the equation at the ECB? Actually, I would distinguish between climate change and climate risk. 
Climate change is a policy issue that should be dealt with only by the political system. But climate risk is a real risk for banks. And so uh, introducing that in the framework when you analyze the riskiness of a bank, absolutely. So think about uh, if I lend a lot of money to buildings in Venice, uh, as we saw, you can go literally underwater. Can we do a nerd alert? <laughs> Is it nerdy that I have Frank Knight's risk, uncertainty, and profit on my iPhone, on my yes, Kindle? Yes, it is. is that, does that qualify? <laughs> Absolutely. He goes in there. This is Elvin Young, folks, 1914. Uh, really, really important. Some Elvin Johnson, rather, out of Cornell. On profit. Define for us the angst right now about profit. We're analyzing profit. This is Magdan Desai, John 101 at LSC. Is profit evil or is profit the be-all and end-all of the capitalism you own as a theory? I think that uh, profits is the carrot you put in front of uh, uh, the people to run faster. Uh, but I think ideally uh, that, that's a carrot that they try to reach, uh, but they don't reach too much of it because uh, we, a, a competitive system keeps uh, the level of profits uh, that uh, tendentially go down over time so that you innovate to get more of them. You don't want a system where you have excess profits because that is an indication that uh, you actually don't have enough competition. That was a hard turn to Tom Keane's reading list. You like on his that? iPhone. I did like that. Luigi, you're going to be sticking with us. We're going to do a special edition of a Five special Things edition, five in just things a moment with Luigi Zingales, University of Chicago Booth School finance professor. I was playing Gates of Galoo with the Afterthought the other night. I'm sorry, what? And Gates of Galoo. What's and, Gates and of Galoo? It's from Pied Piper, you okay. know? Okay. And what's so important here to understand is it's like the real world. Like, John, you and I have had the honor of being on Billions and all the rest of them, and I think Succession. It's, we're, ch we're children. We're amateurs compared to the celebrity that joins us right now, a senior technical advisor for Richard and the Pied Piper family. And of course, this can be none other than Silicon Valley. On HBO. On HBO. And, and you know, she walked in here with an entourage, made Reese Witherspoon blush. <laughs> I think part-time she's also a Stanford finance professor oh, really? too. Anna Admati joins us now. Thank Good morning you. to you. It's great to see you. Great to be here. Let's talk about the tech sector, shall we? You might say that the financial sector is badly regulated. Some people might make that argument. Others might take the other side of it. I think we can all agree that we can talk about a sector that's hardly regulated at all. Technology. Your thoughts on that? Well, you know, we woke up to the fact that here's an industry that started as a global thing. And in the beginning uh, of the Internet, there was this a sort of statement uh, uh, in, of the uh, independence of uh, cyberspace. And it was like sovereign governments kind of get out of the way. You have no place within us. That was a declaration of independence of the cyberspace back then. <clears throat> and sure enough, sovereign governments stayed away. In the U.S., we gave them complete immunity on, you know, any issue of content and all of that. And all of a sudden, everybody, except for China, that figured this out right away, wakes up to how we're going to deal with their power, with their control of data, with privacy, with this and that. Okay, and so. but you're, you're telling Silicon Valley what to do with Richard Hendricks. And I guess he's Mark Zuckerberg. I'll let you decide who he is. And he wears a T-shirt and he's got a gazillion dollars and all that. This is not John D. Rockefeller. You want to break up, as an example, Pied Piper or Facebook. You want to break them up like Standard Oil. 
I, I didn't say that I'm slogan asking. wake. I think there's something wrong with them right now. The concentration of you know, here was the internet created to to sort of put money, it put power at the end notes, and everybody was going to be democratic. And all of a sudden, you got we can turn of it power. off, can't we? I canceled my Facebook account. Yes, yeah, so you could decide that, and some people, you know, can't. Even kids can't quite cancel their Facebook, or they'll be socially, you know, shunned, uh, or they're on Instagram or, did, or, or others. Did you tell them how to sit in the scenes in Congress? I mean, are they like calling you up and saying, "What's the proper tone we should sit no. in in Congress"? No, I. I, I I got involved a little bit in this last season of Silicon Valley because it has more policy components because I caught out a course at Stanford uh, on the internet with a co-producer of that of that series. And so this this series is helping the public begin to appreciate you know what we're up against here, yeah. which is the control no, well, of data. Well, seriously, it does. Well, let's talk it about does. the policy no, That's then. how the public learns, even including you know billions in some of these. I mean, they kind of make joke out of the serious issues. If we can, Professor, let's talk about the potential policy changes and, and where you suggest people should actually start. Senator Warren, our reporting suggesting that she's really trying to push ahead with drafting legislation to reverse mega mergers. I'm not an expert here. I don't know if that's doable, if it's feasible. I have no idea how it would work. But there's certainly some criticism about the ability of the likes of Facebook to go out there and buy WhatsApp, to buy Instagram, the ability of Google to go out there and buy YouTube. Whether you should be able to reverse them, I have no idea. But in your mind, Professor, where do you begin in this big effort? I'll tell you where I begin. I think that, that some of the basic practices of, of the platforms can be dealt with with basic consumer protection law. Think of the way we, we sign, we agree to things, you know. Do you agree to, you click I agree I, to I things? I 100% agree with your agreement on agreeing. Well, it's not. It's, uh, it's not consent. It's a it's a, it's a uh, mockery of oh, consent. No, seriously, in the fiction of Silicon Valley, they got this game, and they figure out in the testimony just before that yeah. they've been checking out people's data. And again, don't we just say, if you do that, you'll go to jail? How well, hard we, is that? We can say all kinds of things. You know, they're saying we just agreed to give them the data, and we agreed. But the way we agreed was yeah, like you can do whatever you want. Well, we, we, we're hostages, basically. Oh, you, you're sitting you, over there all dark, smug. You actually read patterns. all that language. I, I've never read that thing. No, if you, if you look at how you could, you know, it, it's a sort of a, a roach motel. You can get in and never out. All these tricks that they play on you and the way I, the user agreements work, they're truly adhesive, what they call them. I never thought I'd hear you say roach motel. <laughs> You've been listening to too much great. But where's dad. the backlash, guys? Where's the backlash? All of this has come to light. I don't think these are popular companies. I don't think many people like Agreed. the likes of Mark yeah. Zuckerberg Agreed. yet. The user base is going up. It's not yeah. going down. International. That's right. So there, Mark Zuckerberg has. It's really true that he has a power over you know more people than many governments parts of their lives of course because first of all it controls facebook entirely so it's a governance problem it's 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 an issue um and secondly decisions about you know who can go on and what political ads can and can't do and all of that are literally okay. in the single hands of himself but this is important and john brought it up before which is there's a liberality here and a tone that pushes against capitalism and free enterprise and business what is your prescription to diminish their power yet allow them to create revenue, profit, and jobs from it? I want them to have a business model that's not as as monopolizing. 
to to everybody. I mean, if you look at the way that they can use their power, and their power comes from data a lot of the time, uh, including you know Amazon's way to control all commerce and then the cloud and all this stuff, as well as Google's dominance in, in search and the way they can then use it, then you you start going after the fact that you know we shouldn't have such concentration of power. Uh, and then you go to try to to not not allow them all of that. Europe starts to sue Google for all kinds of uh, ways in which they they control searches and therefore harm competition. The argument of Silicon Valley is that the government sees itself as a hammer and everything big looks like a nail. Yes. And I want to talk to you about size and the importance of size because the argument Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook has made is that we can control some of these issues on our platform because we have the size and we have the resources to deal with them. And if you break us up, we won't. That's his argument, certainly not mine. What do you say back to that? Well, I think size, again, is just one of many components that you look at. So size per se is, is, is a trigger sometimes for sort of the breakup outcry. But I look at, 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 at the practices, at, the, at, at, at anti-competitive uh, practices that, that the law actually allows you to go after. So you can, you can, go, right. you can go after the way you don't allow competitors to come in the mm -hmm. way they have this kill zone the way all these things that they can do to 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 crush and undermine right. competition james diamond in his annual article which everybody on wall street reads 56 pages of heat passion and brilliance said look it's hard work I'm not here's the numbers operating income 31 billion 34 36 41 43 and they're modeled out 44 for this year they have have operating income growth they have profitability of 28 cents on the dollar net income Graham Dodd and Cottle end of the line they're hugely profitable but do they create a societal value with that profit there are many indications that uh, that the answer to that is no, not commensurable with these. That basically these are extractive industries. There's now a book by he's employing two hundred and fifty-seven thousand people. I understand that, but that is uh, is the uh, are the all these people most most productively employed? They could be going uh, elsewhere. They could be driving Ubers. Come on, they're down in Plano, no, no, Texas, at but, a campus. But if the economy was less distorted by these industries, they can actually attract talent even uh, away from other industries, then maybe we would, uh, you know, maybe some of the physics majors or biotechnology well, that goes, majors that goes would go back somewhere to, else. That goes back to whether it should be the regulator that makes the decision about what's productive and what isn't, or whether it should be the market. That's right. And But it can't be a distorted market. I want exactly that. But I think that when you distort it so that there is outside subsidies and outside market power to certain okay. sectors of the economy, then you're not getting good allocation of, of, See, of all kinds of resources. This is has heated she was at that first meeting with the, the head of show for Silicon Valley, where he said, you're doing this wrong. you got to sit up this way in Congress to tell them what to do. We've got to get the professor back. We Anna, do. Anna Another Martin, we Stanford love Stanford finance you. professor. A timely conversation as we report in the last 24 hours that U.S. antitrust yeah. enforcers have broadened their scrutiny of Amazon to AWS, the massive cloud yeah, business, Tom. Right now, we want to have our trade discussion of December 
And we can only do that with Ted Aldwin of the Council on Foreign Relations. You've heard me speak of his failure to adjust. It is a terrific adult read on America and our multilateral, bilateral, and our unilateral realities. Ted, thrilled to have you. Thanks so much for your early morning hour on the Pacific Coast. A strategy for competing in a globalized world. Was that evident at NATO with the President of the United States? No, I, I think it would be hard to say that the president has a, a, has a strategy. I mean, he certainly, he certainly believes in leverage. And so his basic view of the world is he wants to try to maximize U.S. leverage wherever he can to win short-term gains in trade negotiations. But strategy, as you know, is a longer-term business. And, and I don't think this administration has a clear strategy at all. One strategy they have is no one's against them. Republicans and Democrats... They may not agree with the messaging. They may not agree with the tone, et cetera, et cetera. But boy, are they all on board the end of a multilateral America. Is that a fact now? Is it a moment or does that get amended into the future? I think it is still up for debate. I mean, there's no question there's a lot of support within the Republican Party and among a lot of Democrats for a much harder line on China and generally for being more narrowly focused on U.S. interests in its trading relationships rather than on building a strong multilateral system. There are a few cracks. I mean, you had Elizabeth Warren on Bloomberg yesterday saying that going after our allies on trade is, is a big mistake. We should be more focused on China. We shouldn't be undermining all of the pillars of the multilateral system. So I think it's still up for debate. But we've gone a pretty long way down that unilateral road under the administration so far. So, Ted, our president is a self-proclaimed tariff guy, and it's been a busy tariff uh, week in terms of news flow and steel from, you know, Argentina and Brazil and maybe France uh, talking about tariffs there. Uh, and then, of course, China. Is there any sense within the beltway that that's the right way to go? Well, I, I think there's very little agreement on the tactics. I mean, one of the reasons the president, two reasons the president's had a lot of room to run. There's a lot of agreement on the motivations. There are huge problems in the trading system, particularly with Chinese behavior. So he's had a lot of support for that. And secondly, as you guys know better than I do, markets have stayed pretty strong. So that's given him a lot of running room. But there is not a lot of enthusiasm for the tariff tactic. I mean, business is very upset about it. The farmers are very upset about it. So I don't think there's any consensus at all that tariffs are a good way to achieve these goals of trying to rebalance uh, global trade in a fairer way. So, Ted, let's focus on China here. Again, rhetoric both ways. It kind of depends on the day you wake up and the tweet that comes across. Where do you think we are in terms of momentum for a phase one type of deal? I'm, I'm still moderately optimistic that we get a phase one deal. I mean, I think there are two reasons for that. I think, one, the Chinese really want it. They, they need a break from trade escalation. I think there's no question it's it's damaged the, the Chinese economy. And secondly, I think the president really does not want to go ahead with the December 15 tariffs, right? That's the tranche that's going to hit all the consumer products. It's going to hit Apple and other smartphones. It's really going to be felt in consumers' pockets here in the United States. And I think president looking okay. to the 2020 election doesn't want to do that. So I think the, the, the odds are still in favor of a phase one deal. I think it's going to be very modest 
but but I'm I'm still betting that some kind of deal comes into place here. In this half hour, Ted Alden, with this failure to adjust, I'm not going to kid you. There's there's books that are like quick reads and they're great. There's books that are effortless to read. My book of the year, Rick Atkinson, on the Revolutionary War, is just effortless to read. He writes so well. I mentioned Cass Sunstein's impeachment primer without mentioning President Trump, and that's just a beautiful short primer. The substance of failure to adjust is so great. It's a really intense book. I, I give it some equivalency to Douglas Irwin's classic Against the Tide. With that said, Ted, have we ever been here before? I mean, going back to an Irwin kind of treatment of out of World War II, are we on original territory as an American trading nation? Uh, let me just say thank you, Tom. To be put in the same sentence with Doug Irwin's work is uh, is a tremendous compliment for me. I mean, Doug would probably give you a better answer to this. No, but I, I want an answer from you. Doug's busy today. No, no, no. I, look, I, I think this is new territory. I mean, there's no question there are parallels when you look back in the 1920s. I mean, the United States has had a long history of, of protectionism if you go back. Yeah. Enough. I think what's different now is we created this system, right? The modern trade system was created in the way we wanted it created. We believed it was very much in our interests as a nation. And now we're dismantling it. That is different. Like if you go back to 19th century United States, Great Britain was the dominant power. We okay. were trying to advance our own economic growth within their system. This is our system, and we're blowing it up. Okay, that to, is new territory. To Secretary Warren's comments about China, U.S. versus everybody else, do you have a feeling as the trade pro – that a president, any president, any party with a different body language to take as an example, Mr. Macron, Mr. Trudeau, Chancellor Merkel and all, with a different body language, do we revert back or amend to something more bilateral and even multilateral? Well, I don't think we're going to recreate the WTO system that existed from sort of 95 until, well, it's going to collapse in about four days here. Um, I, we don't go back to that. I think binding dispute settlement is essentially off the table for the future. I think the question is, can you reconstruct something that is still essentially a rules-based system? If you look at the old right. GATT system, pre-WTO, it was a rules-based system. Most countries complied most of the time. Uh, if they lost disputes and they didn't like them, countries would say to heck with it. You know, we don't care what the GATT says. We're going to do what we need to do for our national interest. But generally, countries were constrained. I think the question now is, do we go back to something like that, which is a manageable system of rules that mostly works pretty well and mostly did work pretty well? Or do we really go to sort of free-for-all, tit-for-tat, tariff and currency wars right. of the sort we saw in the 20s and 30s. And that is still open to question, I think. Uh, Ted Alden of the Council on Foreign Relations, the book is Failure to Adjust. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.